Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Greg Van Dyke. We're at Keeler Estate Vineyards in Amity. It's May 28th, 2021. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, the first question, biggest question, why wine? Uh, you know, it, it, it's a good question, of course. Uh, it was not my first direction, uh, you know, in high school or college. Um, but I was midway through college and I ended up kind of taking a step back. I was in, the, I was in engineering in uh, mechanical engineering and I two years into it I was I wanted to kind of take a look at what else I might want to do because I wasn't totally sure of myself about about the time I got that exposure so I uh, took a year off and I worked for just a friend of mine uh, led me to uh, Ken Wright and so I went to work with Ken Wright and uh, kind of did a little bit of everything in the vineyard and the you know more more in the winery and the cellar uh, but worked for him for just about a year, and I loved it. I like, you know, just got a good experience there. Um, you know, I'm from an agricultural background, so I like that aspect. And wine was exciting to me. I had never, you know, I was I was aware of it or being around us, but I was still young. I was 19 years old, so I didn't really uh, understand wine yet. But I got a really good uh, first experience there working for Ken, and um, he's a great mentor, and um, you know, just learned roughly how to make wine you know the very basics and uh you know i wasn't i wasn't up to any level of wine knowledge at that point at all so i uh you know absorbed a lot and i was kind of fascinated by you know fascinated by the process and you know really enjoyed it got to appreciate wine a little bit whereas i had no experience appreciating wine before that so um you know, like the Pinot Noir, and I actually worked back towards whites from that experience. Um, but really loved the process of winemaking and loved watching people, you know, get excited about wines. It was, it was, you know, I'm from an agricultural background. A lot of times you just ship your product off and, you know, you get what you get kind of thing. You know, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, direct interaction with your consumer mm-hmm. or something like that. There's no, none of that. So it was uh, new to me to see that. and. Really enjoyed it, yeah. It was good experience for me, and so I, I went back to school. Didn't jump right into winemaking after that, but I had a vision to come back to it eventually. Um, but always kind of staying involved. So that's that's really why I first, dope, you know, you know, kind of got that passion for it a little bit. And um, I liked a lot of it was just the enjoyment of people, and you know, watching them just really appreciate mm-hmm. your product and. Yeah, it's kind of exciting to see. So we'll come back to that. I got lots of, lots of questions to follow up on, but I want to back up for a second. You mentioned agricultural background. So tell me about yeah. kind of your early life upbringing and, and education before wine. Uh, so I grew up on a farm outside of Carleton, um, just a few miles outside, and we farmed all around Carleton and Yamhill area. My dad, my brothers, um, I come from a big family. And uh, uh, so I have, I have four brothers and one sister, so there's six, six siblings total the bunch of us and uh, um, you know we were wheat grass seed clover forage and you know, basically forage and seed products uh, my dad used to raise cattle to a certain point we got out of that business in like the late 80s mm-hmm. and uh, 
because that you know the economy that all changed so that market fell out um, we kept a few cows around um, my brothers and I'd raise a bunch of chickens during the summer just kind of a hobby thing for us just something to keep us busy when we were really young um, you know make a few bucks at it that's fun you learn from it and uh, but yeah like you know pretty much a, a good good size farm especially for a single family we we were you know 1,500 to 2,000 acres, I think, at the at the peak. And uh, so, yeah, definitely, you know, appreciate hard work and, and agriculture, and I love watching things grow and flourish. And so that's that's definitely a passion, something that's you know ingrained in you. So, yeah. So you mentioned uh, mechanical engineering as your initial. What, what 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 was the draw there? What were you thinking you would do with that? And where did you go to school? Uh, you know, I think I think working on farm equipment as as a as a young. <laughs> You know, I, I worked on the farm all summer and sometimes during the regular, you know, regular school year and whatnot in the evenings and late afternoons. Um, but a lot of it was a lot of being a farmer is, is a, being a mechanic. And uh, so you learn to work on things, you learn, you know, all kinds of mechanical, whether it's cars, trucks, tractors and combines and everything you can imagine, you know, and all your other implements. And so you get frustrated working on certain things. And you're like, I could have done, I could have made this better, you know? <laughs> so that's, that was my thinking, but you know, that really, it's, uh, there's a lot of ingenuity and a lot of engineering that goes into those, that equipment. And, um, you know, I, I think it was a good idea for me. I, I, pre, I, that's kind of what led me into mechanical, but mm -hmm. that was my exposure. And I thought, well, maybe I can improve on these things. Cause I certainly saw opportunities here and there. And as you run them and work on them, you see, you see things you could maybe change or, yeah, mm -hmm. make better. So it's that was kind of my initiative there. <laughs> yeah. And where did you go to school? Oregon State, Oregon State. University. Yeah. Figured as much engineering and all. So. Right. Yeah. Right so, down the road. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned kind of your first being introduced to Ken Wright. It kind of had to be your first sort of introduction to wine. So I'm curious as you started to develop a, a how did you how did you educate yourself on wine on both on both like the flavor of wine and also sort of the production of wine what, what was the biggest educational component for you um, you know really just being involved in it I didn't I wasn't it wasn't all on me you know you didn't have to understand everything working for another winery I think when I went to do it more from you know myself I, I realized all the things I didn't know you know so I think that then you just start pulling from whether it's some classes you take or uh, you know a lot of us winemakers around you and people around you that you know you can you can learn from um, you know people you're making wine with people you're making wine next to people that are down the road whatever but I think that's you know a lot of it was uh, does that really answer the right question, or is that a, an offshoot of that? No, it, it does. It does. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm always curious because you, people you, people find their passions different ways, but I'm always mm -hmm. curious once you find that passion, where does that take you next? Like, where is where are sort of the steps you take to yeah. to, to understand wine better? Yeah, I think when I went to New Zealand, I got a whole another appreciation for wine. I went there and worked at a winery for a uh, better part of a little over three months, and then I traveled about another three four weeks. Um, but that was a great place out of Rangi. Uh, south end of the North Island in uh, Martinborough, New Zealand, and it was a small, you know, family winery. Um, has a relationship with Ken Wright. It's kind of how I. That's how I got a connection there, and uh, I think then I realized, you know, the the wine world was much bigger than I had any idea, and 
and how much people can really, how much there is to learn. It's just, it's a vast, I mean, whether it's the science or the you know, marketing and everything else, the entertaining and all that goes with it, um, viticulture, there's just so much involved, you know, and then uh, hospitality is a lot of it too, which that's, you know, a whole different business. Yeah. So Very multifaceted. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you when you went to New Zealand, what what were you thinking at that point? Were you thinking of wine as, as a thing you would do long term? Uh, you know, it was the downturn of the economy. I had been out of work for about a year. I had consolidated all my belongings and cut all my, you know, kind of liquidated, let's say. Got got my expenses down to next to nothing and put it in a box and and uh, went to New Zealand and it was just uh, it was an opportunity because I wasn't, I had no excuse not to. And I've been thinking about it for a long time. And so it's like, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, working a great job I can't possibly walk away from right now. So that was an easy <laughs> answer. So I went over there and, um, you know, it was a great experience. And I came back and there still wasn't a lot more jobs. And I tried to get into the, stay in the wine industry, but it just, there wasn't a lot out there available for, you know, decent paying work that you could do year round. Um, so I ended up back in engineering, as it turns out, but kept kept in my mind I really wanted to start making my own label. Um, so that was that was kind of the push there. I think I think that was a good a good reminder of how much I missed it, mm -hmm. and you know, good good plunge back into it, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Between working at Ken Wright and working in New Zealand, uh, tell me about sort of starting to develop the idea so that if you, if you did start your own thing someday, what, what would it be? How, 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 had you decided what, your, what kind of wines you'd make and, and, and how much you'd make and all of those kind of things, at what point did that start becoming a, a reality for you? Um, you know, my, most of my experience have been with Pinot Noir. That was, that's probably my strongest suit originally. And, um, you know, I learned to make white wines as well. Really appreciated other wines. I mean, all kinds: um, Chardonnay, Pinot Blancs, and um, some other obscure ones that are much less obvious. But you know, the list goes on. And you know, I think uh, working there, I, I learned some new varietals and some new techniques, as you would. You know, you got to every place you go, people do things a little differently. Um, so that was that was exciting to know. You know, there's there's a lot more out there, but I. Kind of started with heavy with Pinot Noir. In fact, my first vintage was only Pinot Noir. And I, I should know, like my brother, my youngest brother, Joe, he also went to New Zealand and made wine um, at another winery at the same time. And uh, when we got back, you know, two years after we got back, we started Bud's Bloom together. And um, so we, you know, the vision was, yeah, let's do, no, let's do a couple tons of fruit. and. And make you know make a make a vintage, mm -hmm. and so we did that, and then we did a second year, and and after the second year, he he works in the wine industry by day, I you know as an engineer by day, I I go do wine in the evenings and, and weekends. For him, it was like I don't want to do wine on the evenings and weekends. So after about two years, he said, uh, I'd really like to take a step back from this, and so that's what that's what he did. We kind of left the door open, um, but he still does wine uh, by day and. I think it was just, you know, mm -hmm. a, a good thing for him to have his free time. You know? <laughs> so, so he. And since then, I've, I've taken on my own. And so the first three vintages, we just did Pinot Noir, um, 
and then I got into Chardonnay in 17, and then just started doing rosé in 2020, rosé of Pinot Noir. Yeah. So take me through the process of you, you, you have this kind of idea in your head that you're someday you're gonna, you're gonna do your own thing and, and you and your brother decide to start it. So tell me, take me through the process of all the things you have to decide on when you're starting a wine brand. So tell me about the, the name and, and about finding your fruit and, and about all of that kind of getting started. That's, that's good questions because it kind of gets all of the history in a roundabout way <laughs> from different angles. Because I'm, I'm gonna bleed into all different port, parts of it slowly, but uh, I think um, you might have to ask me that one again now because I just jumped around in my own mind. <laughs> um, about getting started. So tell me about like getting started, getting, finding a the name, brand, the branding, the branding, and, the and finding grapes, and finding a place to make wine. All, all the all the stuff you have to do to get a brand off the ground. Right. So our farm um, is is the original is the or, origin of all this. My dad's farm and um, my grandfather's farm as well because he he uh he farmed here in the willamette valley yamhill carlton area and um my dad started his own farm my uncles and cousins they all farm as well there's a bunch of van dykes out there that farm in the area as you as you know but uh this one piece of property that my dad inherited from my grandfather that we farmed i farmed it growing up um my family did and we eventually, that, that was the one property we planted to vines in 2008 when my parents retired from their regular farming. So my dad started a whole nother, another, a whole nother farm, a whole nother job basically. I, I retired, but now I started a new job. And then, so in 08, we planted uh, 20 acres of vines. It's now grown to 30 acres. Uh, it was 75% or let's say, let's say 15, 15 acres of Pinot, two and a half Chardonnay and two and a half of Riesling. Um, now it's now it's grown to just well, 30 acres total, of which uh, 15 of that, 15 of it is Pinot and five of it is Chardonnay. The two and a half acres have been grafted over to, or the two and a half acres of Riesling has been grafted over to Chardonnay um, for you know economical reasons mostly. I really wanted to make wine out of it. I never got that opportunity really. We did, we did make a little bit. Like my my brothers and I did a small. You know, basket press project. The first year it produced anything in the Riesling, and uh, that was a fun little project. But it, you know, it was it was subpar, let's say, mediocre. <laughs> but it was fun, you know, little project. But it was just the first year it was producing, mm -hmm. you know, barely anything. Mm -hmm. So, but it's fun. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where the name originated was from my grandfather, who went by Bud. Um, Real name was Robert, but he he produced. Uh, sorry, he, you know, he, we I came up with that name with my brother. We kind of were bouncing ideas, and we wanted to go back to the roots of, you know, go back to the roots of the vineyard, where that originated, where that land originated, you know, where it comes from and its history, and seemed very obvious to get give homage to, you know, my grandfather, and um, you know, even though it's my dad's deal now but it's kind of going as far back as we could on the, on that history mm -hmm. and and it, it was seemed like a good had a good feel to it you know a warm kind of a warm name we wanted something approachable the bloom is the bloom is really standing for like renaissance or kind of the development from the progression from farming to wine growing mm -hmm. you know to grape growing and wine growing so 
that's that's the idea behind Bloom is kind of that transformation, you know, the new beginning, as I'd say. Yeah. So that's that's where I came up with it. But I think wanted to wanted to pay respects to the history and also give something that was different than uh, you know Chateau Day <laughs> and so on. So I mean, those are all great and everything. But it's it, you know we kind of wanted to be something new and fresh and something a little bit uh, more the next generation of, of wine too. So I think that was a lot of it. But so it was really a collaboration between my brother Joe and I had to come up with that. And, and uh, I think that's been well received. Sometimes it throws people off. Once in a while I get, is there marijuana in that? I'm like, no, but sometimes I want to tell them there is. But I did think about doing a CBD wine years ago. And I was like, well, I, hope, I don't want to put people to sleep. You know, they're already falling asleep sometimes. So anyway. You know. But before I could get around to it, and I talked with the OCC, and they, anyway, they, they, uh, they couldn't tell me anything. Like, no, there's really no regulations against that. So I said, oh, should I have asked? Because <laughs> then about a year or two later, it came up that they finally they said, yeah, we can't have mm -hmm. CBD and alcoholic drinks, which it's probably a liability anyway, you know, <laughs> as much as there is anyway. But yeah, it was that. I get that question once in a while. It's kind of fun. But. But no, there's no marijuana in it. <laughs> when it yeah. comes, when it came to obviously a, a whole, like you say, a whole family of farm going back generations. When it comes to farming wine grapes, was there anything different about it for for you and the family? Was there anything new you had to learn, or anything you had to do differently than you were expecting? Yeah, uh, you know, my my father did a very uh, he did he did a very in depth. Um, he did his research, you know. He did he did a lot of research, talked to a lot of people, and in the in the industry, um, kind of found some found some good resources. And he definitely surveyed different people's ideas of what to plant, how to plant it. You know, there's a lot lot more than I knew that went into planting a a vineyard for starters. Um, and then, you know, as far as the winemaking process goes, just finding a home to do it and maintaining you know I've moved to I'm on my I'm in my third location now here at Keeler and this is this has been by far the best spot um, great people great great facilities just a good culture here good vibe around here so that's been excellent but just uh, yeah operating at different facilities has always been different you're working with all kinds of different people which is part of the the fun and all of it is all the people you get to meet and people you work with um, make different neck you know different connections and networking with all different groups around here, but uh, I think that was a lot of it is trying to find, uh, you know, a spot where you can make wine mm -hmm. and do it the way you want to do it too. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not an easy fit because there's so many different scales and so many different approaches and practices and mm -hmm. in different places you go, different winemakers, different wineries. So that is that is you know pretty much a so you know so much depth to that mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of you know, a lot of opinions and a lot of different ideas out there on how to do things so that's a lot of the fun of it it's that that's kind of the artistic factor I guess right so when it came time to find a place to start um, what were your options when it came to find a place to start and what, what were you looking for and what did you find um, I was looking for a place that we could do it custom um, where I could still have my day job, so needed you know some help from the winery. That had to be a winery that had space for us, mm -hmm. and was open to first of all doing custom contracts because not everybody does. 
and it wasn't a really common thing, you know, as far as I know, 20 years ago or so. You know, there were kind of maybe one here and there. Now yeah. there's hundreds of us <laughs> that are at, at a guest as a guest at another winery, let's say. Um, yeah, that's kind of the that's probably the hardest part is finding that right fit mm -hmm. and somewhere that's you know you can want to be within the vicinity of your fruit hopefully with vicinity of your home so you're not driving too much in a place that you can go every day and not run yourself ragged i guess because you know? mm -hmm. for a while i was in portland living in portland and then driving out to laurel ridge and driving out to day camp and um I moved out here about a year and a half ago, moved back to actually a property of my family's. And uh, well, eventually I was at two other spots kind of bouncing around trying to find a fit, but I still have my house in Portland. So anyway, I got rid of that drive, thank God, because it was, you know, could be brutal sometimes. And then talk myself out of going to the winery some days, you know, where I'm like, I should be there, but mm -hmm. I just missed traffic, the the window. So <laughs> hmm. maybe I'll put it off, but that that's, uh, that's a big part of it, having that right fit, vicinity, and all those things. And, mm -hmm. and the culture is huge because mm -hmm. there's a lot of different, a lot of different cultures within the wine industry, for sure. I'm curious about at the shared, since you've been at shared spaces entirely, uh, you you talk about the kind of the being around a lot of people with a lot of opinions, a lot of a lot of thoughts on things. So tell me about what the advantages to that are of working a place like Day or, or here, and what the biggest disadvantages you've found so far. Are. Um. You know, advantages, it's, there's a ton of advantages just because you you can learn from what other people are doing, you can ask questions, you can get help with things. You know, people actually pitch in and give you a hand and you do the same for other people too when they need it. Um, but you learn a lot of different techniques and and sometimes it's just food for thought. You know, you might not, you're probably not going to do something exactly the same as somebody else, even if you want to. It's probably all you're always going to be doing something a little different. Uh, but you take those things and you put them in your toolbox, and mm -hmm. you know you use them as you use them as you see fit. But I'm still learning a ton, so I I benefit from that a lot, where I can find something from different winemaker, every different winemaker that I, you know, I'm, I didn't know that, which is not saying a lot. <laughs> you know, I have a lot, still have a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. um, Probably more than a lot of these really, really great winemakers out out here, but and elsewhere. But uh, yeah, that's that's fun to learn different things. Um, and the big advantage is you get to meet cool people and you get to hang out and work together. Um, you know, you deal with a lot of the same issues in the winery as they do, or vineyard for that matter. Uh, so yeah, that that's a lot of it. I think is is the networking you get and and just all the opportunities that come out of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you kind of learn some cool things, some different different techniques that you had no idea. It's like, oh, that, okay. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in mind or, you know, sometimes I'll just have people, you know, people give me a recommendation. I'm like, yeah, that's that sounds good. I like that better than what I was thinking about doing, <laughs> you know? And so you learn something and it helps you sometimes instantly. So mm -hmm. it's, yeah, the, the, the camaraderie and the and the community effect so you get help from all these people that you know they're they're your competition too but they're really not you know mm -hmm. I mean at least the ones right next to you really aren't <laughs> it's mm -hmm. you know it's the bigger greater masses of wine out there that are in warehouses that's your that's your competition <laughs>
So oh, I'm curious now about the about the winemaking side of things, about the learning how to make wine and, and learning how to be sort of how to make the wine you want to make. Tell me about that the process for you. Uh, what kind of wines were you set, did you set out to make, and, and how did you learn how to make them? Well, I wanted to make very natural, you know, as natural a wine as I can. That's good still. So. You know, what I'm familiar with, I think, is where you kind of start. I haven't branched off too much because I haven't had the capacity to expand mm -hmm. or do other varietals. I'd love to do more and more and more, but I said I did just Pinot the first three years, you know, so those three vintages were kind of much simpler than doing more varietals, but I wasn't getting, you know, I, was, I didn't have that whole portfolio, and it's, I still don't really. You know, I have a little bit more of a portfolio and hope to produce more and more varietals as I as I go here, you know, in the next few vintages, but mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of it is uh, I wanted to make wines that were approachable for anyone, but also still sophisticated and appreciated by the best wine drinkers, the most sophisticated wine drinkers. But you know, something that anybody could say. And I've had this happen where people are like, oh, you know, I really don't like Pinot. It's you know, they they're they're a cab drinker, or they like a, a white Zinfandel, or they like sweet Rieslings or something, you know? Mm -hmm. they, they have a di whole different a whole different palette for wine than say I would, and and I would pour, I'd be like, go try this anyway, you know, mm -hmm. at a, an event or something. I'd pour that wine for them, and they're like, wow, that is really fruity. I expected it to be, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the thing. I, I don't, I do 100% French oak, but I do, uh, you know, 90, 90% neutral oak mm -hmm. so it, it really has the same effect on the tannins and the structure of the wine but it doesn't give it as much it doesn't give it as much oak or oak tannin as much um, but it yeah it doesn't give it that oaky smokiness that that a, like a lot of new barrels would have you know on a, a lot of these more uh, a lot of these pinots out here in general I guess a lot of wines are a ton more oak than what I what I produce uh, but I do all 100% French oak as, on my Chardonnay as well and my rosé, but the rosé doesn't spend a lot of time barrel aging. Mm. It's pretty pretty quick to bottle. Mm. Um, my Chardonnay spends some time in the barrel and the Pinot as well, but yeah, 12 to 18 months. And you know, I like I like the fact that it doesn't get really oaky, but it still gets refined in that in the barrel. I try to bring in you know highest not high acidity, but a good level of acidity, mm. so I know that that's going to make the wine pop and it's going to make it's going to protect it and preserve it and also make it also really drinkable <laughs> it makes it juicy um, like my chardonnay is you know it's not it's not an oaky buttery chardonnay you know it has a little touch of oak to it but it's very light and that's why i like it's just very easy for you know people that you know they're really just getting into wine it's mm -hmm. it's simple mm -hmm. simple it's supposed to be kind of you know the elements and keep it keep it basic you know don't do any more than i have to do to it so i want to you know not take too much away from just the fruit and i try to bring everything out in the fruit i can you know without overdoing it uh, but yeah just that's kind of my my approach yeah so as you um i'm curious about that is that what you started when you set out to make wine, was that the, kind of the first thing, or how has your approach approach kind of changed over time as you've grown in your abilities? Um, well, it's, it hasn't changed a lot. 
I guess. So I mean, it probably has, but in my mind, it doesn't seem to have. But if I gotta really think about that some more, to think about what I'm doing differently, other than making white wine now, where I wasn't to begin with, um, I'm learning a lot of, you know, just how to do, how to really protect that wine and make it as, as bright and vibrant as I can. Um, I think that's really kind of more, what I've been try, trying to develop more and more is kind of getting more experienced and, and also learning how to react to different, you know, adversity mm -hmm. in general, whether it's coming from fruit in the vineyard or, you know, picking schedule or, or what's going on in the winery. Maybe it's busy and I can't process what I want to process one day and I put it off to the next day. That, you know, that has an effect. So it's, mm -hmm. um, yeah, working with all that, all those challenges, you know, some, the surprises, you know, whether it's in processing, you know, crush or in the cellar or at day of bottling, because we all know day of bottling can be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> There's always gonna be some kind of hiccup, you know. It's whatever it's can something. happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Murphy's law. <laughs> kind of thing. Something will go wrong. So it seems like a, a lot of that comes from sort of confidence. Like you have to have. The, I'm, I'm curious, at what point did you feel you had the confidence to make some of those decisions and to handle some of that adversity? Oh, well, I think you just kind of don't have a choice but to, you know, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm com I committed, I jumped in head first, so you got to be prepared to swim. And I think once, you know, once I took that on my shoulders more and more, pers you know, independently, it really started to, to hit me like, okay, I really have to just learn how to do this and I have to do it. And sometimes, yeah, the confidence is a big thing because you, you always got to be confident in what you're doing, but if you're overconfident, you're, you might screw something up in a different way, I think, too. But I think it's, I think confidence is a big thing. I see, you know, I, I can't be cocky, but I know there's a lot of that that goes into some, a lot of the, some great winemakers are definitely very, very, you gotta be confident in your, in your skills and, and uh, decision making. And sometimes you gotta make some risky or, I mean, it's all kind of, you know, you could, especially the bigger batches of wine, right? You know, the more risk and, and anything you do to them, every time you every time you handle that wine or mm -hmm. move it, it's got to be it's got to be done right. But I think you have to have you have to believe in in what you're doing mm -hmm. and believe in your fruit and and etc. It's you know so and then your people too. If you I'm, I don't really have a a slew of people working for me, right? So, <laughs> but I think a lot of wineries have to have confidence in their people to do to make good wine and. Mm -hmm. Just try not to screw it up. <laughs> so along with that, uh, I'm curious if there's, uh, if you have a, a memory of, uh, of one of those kinds of decisions. Was there, was there a time when you had to make a decision like that, had to take a risk, had to do something um, that you weren't sure about? And, and how did it play out? Um, you know, the smoke taint challenges this year, I, you know, I think everybody can say that that's a challenge, even the it, yeah, it doesn't matter who you are, it's, it's a challenge. And my challenge was, am I gonna, first of all, the question is, am I gonna do vintage this year? Because I don't have a ton of commitment, I don't have a lot of contracts with a bunch of different vineyards. And even if I did, I could, you know, a lot of people backed out of a lot of contracts. And, uh, you know, I saw the challenge was like, well, I, I, I wanna see what, what I can do. And I also had to wait and see you know, gauge what the smoke was doing in the area and our, our particular vineyard. 
and it's you just don't really know until it's until you the fruits in and because you don't have time to get it tested and make that decision so you kind of you're rolling the dice everybody rolled the dice that made wine this year this last vintage 20 so um that first and foremost and then once i brought the wine in the question was okay do i make more white pinot or do i make rosé um you know i consider both and uh, so i did a excuse me a little less a little less uh, pinot this year and i did more i actually did rosé of pinot this year which i've been needing to do and wanting to do which i've done in the past but not under my label and so it was I had no excuse not to this year, basically. And I had all, all the more incentive to do that because smoke taint would be less, if any bit obvious, you know, it'd be, it'd be less of an effect on a white wine. You know, you're not, you're pressing it off and you're not, uh, you're not utilizing the skins of the grape and, uh, you know, the cluster stems and such. Um, Cause that's really where you're gonna pick up a lot of that, mm -hmm. that, that structure, the, a lot of that smoke taint. So. Mm -hmm. Um, that was a lot of the challenge, I think, was just deciding, like, what am I going to do? Am I going to actually do vintage? And then what am I going to do with this vintage? And how am I going to make the most of it and take the least? You know, I want to minimize my risks, but I still want to take some risks, you know? <laughs> I want to minimize, but I still, you know, so there's that cost-benefit. And so that's what I did. I kind of waited out a little bit. I'm like, I'm still doing rose. I'm still doing Chardonnay, of course. Um, and, I, you know, I went and tasted fruit and... You can't necessarily taste it for sometimes years, mm. but uh, you know, or at least till it's in the bottle, it might be a year in the bottle before you can, you can pick it up. I've heard all kinds of things. There's a lot of new information out there, let's say, and we're not really familiar with the, the smoke challenge out here. Mm -hmm. um, definitely after last year, we learned a lot. I think uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I got to do vintage and that I did make that leap but I know a lot of people backed out of contracts and, and I did end up buying fruit from another vineyard this year because of the fact that it was an open contract you know there was a tonnage on the vines that people weren't taking so um, I took a little bit of fruit from Duvera Vineyard which is just down the road from Janice Vineyard our vineyard mm -hmm. um, it's a couple miles down the road but essentially right next to uh, Saffron Fields and Coincidentally, I was building a house there for the owner of the property as a, as a project manager. And I got to talk to him one day. He's like, so how are you doing on your fruit? Because he knew I made wine and he asked me and I said, well, I haven't picked yet. I know people are picking like crazy, but I'm still waiting on, I had, I, you know, there's different theories, but I, I figured some rain would only probably dilute that, hope, that smoke taint, hopefully. There's other theories that the rain could bring more smoke taint to to the skin and they could actually absorb more. Mm -hmm. But I always, I tend to wait a little longer to get a little more maturity on the, of, of the actual fruit. Even though the sugar levels are up and the acid might be right, I might still wait two more weeks for a little more rain and a little more sun to kind of get that stem to turn mm -hmm. more brown, get rid of the green and get the seeds to be really brown. So same kind of thing. Whereas this year I waited and I got to talking to him though and he said, yeah, I, I have a lot of fruit out there that's not being picked up yet, and some people backed out of contracts, so I just took a ton of from Duvert, and it was a new clone I've never worked with before, 1018, and a lot of people aren't familiar with it, but it, was, it, it appears, and I've heard, that it, it makes good rosé uh, because it has you know, bigger berries, you know, less, less skin to juice ratio, I guess. Um, 
and so I, either way, I was gonna make rosé out of it, <laughs> you know, and so I did half of this rosé in Duvera Vineyard and half from Janus Vineyard, our vineyard, so um, a little kind of a, the first time I've stepped outside of our vineyard to use fruit from somewhere else with this label, mm -hmm. and so that was, it's kind of a fun change up, and um, you know, just bring something different into my winemaking. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was a big part of figuring out what to do this vintage, and also trying to capitalize on, honestly, getting a a, a discount on part of that fruit, mm -hmm. which every little bit helps. You know, it's <laughs> fruit's expensive, especially Pinot. You talked earlier about you've all you're always surrounded by by people and, and, and a lot of a lot of different a lot of different thoughts on on wine and wine making. So, when it came to for 2020 specifically, and you were dealing with smoke, uh, you're obviously hearing a lot of different opinions. So, how do you kind of figure out your path forward uh, while also kind of heeding other people's opinion? Yeah, I mean, it's there were some people that were doom and gloom, and there's some people that said this isn't you know this there might be some issues, but we're going to make the most of it, and we're going to we're gonna mitigate all those issues as much as possible. So I mean, a lot of my, a lot of people that I know in the industry, people that got me into the industry, got me interested to begin with. Um, you know, I, I listen to their advice and other winemakers I'm making wine next to. You know, people that I appreciate their opinions and and uh, their expertise, and some people that have had experience or know some people from, or they had experience in Tasmania or Northern California with smoke tan in previous vintages mm -hmm. that you know I'd take a little advice from here and there and you read you read some different things and um, I can't say I read, read a ton of journals or anything I just you kind of hear a lot of different stuff there's a lot of noise going on at that point and, and winemakers always get you know yeah I don't know what the word is but kind of uh, let's say anxious <laughs> they get a little bit crazy in, in September August September October because there's it's when you make your whole year happen you know in that month or two besides all the viticulture aspect but just as far as how what you're doing to for crush mm -hmm. you know what you're doing that vintage and bringing fruit in so harvest is a high energy fun time but it's also uh, you got to make decisions on the fly constantly and you're you know sometimes you're you know you're making your bounty for the year really mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Yeah. So, tell me about the the growth of your brand a little bit. Uh, from the you mentioned the, just just making three pinots to start, you've obviously expanded in terms of what you're making. But tell me about the growth in terms of uh, production size and in terms of uh, sort of marketability. How how are you selling wine and 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 how are you? Uh, how has that changed? I guess from the start. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think I'm making as good a wine as when I started, if hopefully better, or, you know, more multifaceted for sure with different varietals. But, uh, you know, like this label done by a, a friend of mine that I grew up with, Nate Brown, he uh, did this with charcoal, just gave him some photos of my grandfather and we manipulated those photos to have the content we wanted, which is the hat with, with weed on it as a farmer and he's got the grapes in his hand. So that's kind of the like we were talking about earlier, the buds bloom. So that was the, ori the origination. This is 2015, so this is the third vintage. But kind of kept going back to the roots, you know, going back to the beginning. 
and uh, you know, pay, paying it forward, I guess, the, uh, the family, you know, the family tradition, lineage. Mm -hmm. And then um, I still wanted to keep that farming roots, history aspect, and um, working the land and stewards of the land. And so I was trying to figure out what image I wanted to work with. And so that's when I came up with the, this tractor idea. And um, a friend of mine who's a great artist up in Portland, Terrence Gaska, he's done some other pieces of art for me, whether they're my friend's dogs that passed away or just he does all kinds of urbanscapes and does some interesting portraiture and mm. some really cool stuff. Um, but great painter, and so him and I have been talking about it for a while, and I finally, you know, caught him when he wasn't too buried in, in work, and uh, said, hey, let's talk about this, because I've, I've got some ideas, you know, what I want to do. You want to pour that? Sure. This is the 2007, this is my first Chardonnay, the 2017 Chardonnay. It's unfiltered and unfined. It's got some layers to it. Where did I leave off there? <laughs> uh, you just you just, just found that. time for your art for your artwork. There. So we so we talked about some ideas and I kind of tried to get this image out to him of what I wanted. I wanted to bring color to it. I wanted to bring it a little abstract, but I also wanted to bring the farming theme, you know, to the mm -hmm. to link this all together and to keep that to keep that focus, I guess. Um, so pulled some different images out and said, I like this about this one and this one, but kind of picked things we liked about different images. And him and I, you know, back, bounced back and forth some different ideas and, and, uh, and he ran with it. And he came up with, this is the closest to the original, this label here, the Chardonnay. That's essentially like, you know, the, it's close to the original painting he did in oil. The original painting in oil, which is it's about a 10 by 10. And so then we manipulated that a little bit for this label to make the Chardonnay. And then also the Pinot, which was next, the 2017 Pinot. And, and then the, the Rosé was one I was really excited about because I was like, I really want like this pink tractor that's kind of, it's fun, it's, you know, it's playful, it's not too serious, but it's still got that same message. A um, little bit psychedelic to it, you know, I kind of like that look of, to it. It's, I think it's really, uh, an exciting label and then the the idea too on the back of these was to you know put all the information on the back just make the front all about art and um so you you know you got to pick it up to find out what it is <laughs> for one <laughs> but i like that too just giving uh respect to the artwork and that terrence did so it's yeah it's been a it's been a great label so far so far people are really enjoying that i think that's kind of the what I'll kind of keep developing and, and expanding on that, whether it's, you know, I think we'll be doing some more paintings and, and whatnot, working on, working on some new ones for the next vintages. Mm -hmm. But uh, something in this theme, I think, is kind of the way forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How about selling wine? What's the, obviously a big challenge for people. Tell me about, tell me about learning how to sell wine and about, about putting your, kind of putting yourself out there with, with, with your name on the label there. Yeah, I need, you know, that's the hardest part. <laughs> I mean, it's easiest part and it's the hardest part. You know, sometimes it's really easy to sell wine, but the, really the fact is you have to sell wine before you can make more wine. So, um, I need, you know, I don't, I'm not a sale, I'm not a really a salesperson. I think I can sell my wine all right, but I'm not, I'm not experienced in sales. I don't, 
I don't do sales for other wineries. I never have. Uh, so I'm learning a lot in that. And it's learning what the landscape is, where I fit into it, how I fit into it. Um, getting myself out there. I'm not, you know, I'm not a super extrovert. I do like to, I'm a little bit of both. I know everybody says that these days, but it's true. Um, yeah, I like that. I'm an introverted extrovert. You hear that all the time, right? Uh, but truly, I, I am a people person, but somewhat of me doesn't want to be like a transparent, open book too much either. So that's a challenge for some, some folks want to know and know all about you and know how you how you did this wine exactly in every detail and you know uh, but it's it's the casual part of it I really enjoy it's the formal the formal stuff is a little tougher for me because it's like you know you got to put on your, your you know their formal kind of a pro you know your formal face and mm -hmm. and uh, catering to that type of, of tasting and pouring and selling is, is different for me I mean I most of the time these most of the events are really fun and and People are, you know, really enjoyable and having a good time and excited about the wines and, and meeting you and, uh, you know, other winemakers around. And, um, but yeah, the challenge, most challenging part, I think, is it's always, you always got to be on it, you know, year round. And then there's two, you know, fall and spring, really the heavy, you know, really the height of, or the two peaks of sales for the year. Mm -hmm. So you got to be on it during those times and you got to be in front of people. Um, yeah, and it's really how how you present yourself, how you present your wine is, you know, it's infinite how many different ways you can go about that. <laughs> Doing it right or wrong or somewhere in the middle, but it can be a lot of fun, but it's certainly like you gotta, you know, I, I really like the wine making more. <laughs> but like I said, part of what got me into making wine was I liked watching people enjoy the mm -hmm. product and, mm -hmm. and and say, oh, that's, you know, and, and appreciate it like you do, you know? That's really good. Um, Got to get back on track here thinking about wine. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious, especially, uh, the, if, if you have any memories of sort of the, the first time you took wine to market, uh, tell, tell me about pouring wine for someone to taste it and, and, and uh, that reaction, like de dealing with kind of again, kind of like being out there, uh, being out there and having people judging your wine. Yeah, I think the first time or two I poured wine, I just expected it would sell itself, <laughs> <laughs> which it kind of did. You know, it was really good wine, really nice wine, especially for my first vintage to whatever. Uh, but the first couple times was like, oh, yeah, this is just going to you know, knock people's socks off because it's your product. You're excited about it. You know, it's just like when you cook for yourself, you know, you're you're more excited about your mediocre dinner you make at home than some really good restaurant that just didn't get it perfect, you know? <laughs> so, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. but, but I think, yeah, it's just the, you think it's gonna be a little easier than it is, and you go, oh, okay, I mean, people, even if they love your wine, you still gotta, you still gotta sell it, you mm -hmm. know? So that's, that, that was a new thing for me, because I didn't really ever have any experience in that realm at all. Mm -hmm. It's always in the production side, so that was that was a new new awakening for sure. But yeah, but it gets better and better, and you know, as I get as I find out as I find my place in the market and my approach and develop it and develop it, it gets easier, you mm -hmm. know. And hopefully that hopefully that just turns into a snowball effect, right? But mm -hmm. yeah, it's still a big part of making wine is, is selling it.
what have you found to be the most successful venues or avenues to sell? Is, is it is it, have you found festivals, direct to consumer, or, or or distribution distribution, or what what's been most successful for you? You know, I just now have distribution other than myself <laughs> just recently and um, that's been refreshing that's been a nice uptick uh, but it's still just getting out of the ground um, with my brand so you know that's that's exciting really direct to consumer I do enjoy I think the I think these small to medium sized events wine events um, ones especially that are focused on you know whether it's our particular AVA, which is Yamhill Carlton, or, or at least for me, that's all I have right now is Yamhill Carlton AVA. Um, you know, those those specific events, um, certain small, yeah, certain festivals, mm -hmm. and there's all you know, so many different types. I've been to some where it's a mixture of wine and this and that. Been to some where it's like, kind of like that, but even more like a carnival. You know, so there's, <laughs> it can be entertaining for sure, like. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of get a kick out of once in a while, but they're always fun and people are having a good time. You know, not people. Most people aren't too critical. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, even if they want to be. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at least not while you're in your shot, yeah, right? Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> at least not not right. Yeah, face to face, exactly. <clears throat> so you talked a bit, a bit earlier about the 2020 harvest. Obviously, uh, the other other issue in 2020, of course, was COVID. I'm, I'm curious for you personally. Tell me about uh, sort of the immediate after effects of, of, of the pandemic, of the shutdown, and uh, sort, sort of the, the, what you had to do last year to make things work. You well, know, um, you know, right when COVID hit, uh, and everybody came to the realization what was going on, and then the shutdown, right when that happened, I had just worked out a deal or two with a, another distributor that I'm not working with, and it would have made my whole year different, you know? <laughs> It would have been too easy, right? So that that just came that went right off the table. As soon as that as soon as shutdown hit, they pulled back the reins and took no, you know took backed out of all those all those orders, or at least mine anyway. So yeah, that was that was a rude awakening right out of the gates for COVID. Uh, but you know I just had to had to supplement my business more than I would have hoped. For the year in order to get to the next vintage not to mention i moved wineries i moved houses all in august and september <laughs> going into harvest and i just bottled and i was working on a new label and the list you know mm -hmm. so that's kind of how i was going in too many different directions so that was a lot of it was you know i i don't have employees so i didn't have that challenge um but definitely, you know, everybody's got a dif different opinion and sensitivity to COVID. And really here, people were professional about it, safe about it. Um, we don't have large groups of folks working during harvest, so there wasn't that aspect. Most, For the most part, you're, you're keeping space and you're not working too close. But we know we still had to be mindful and, and uh, it, it changed, it changed the, the feeling. Last harvest definitely felt like it, it was an uphill an uphill battle, but all in all great, all in all great so far. So, mm -hmm. you know, it was not without, not without its struggles uh, a little bit. You just kind of had, you know, especially when I was moving from day camp to here, you know, all doing it all solo. I mean, every bit of it. And so, <laughs> you know, I'm moving full barrels, you know, 
20 some 30 barrels from from day camp on a trailer down here and then uh you know all my all the bits and pieces otherwise and then uh, just getting ready for harvest was not easy because there's just so much going on and and everything was a struggle You know just going to the grocery store, right was was not easy during 2020 for a while It was just like uh, yeah So it made things a little trickier and definitely supply, you know supply has been a little tougher. You can't get uh, You know your packaging your bottles your all that stuff is a little harder to get in a timely manner and have as many options. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're fewer options and, and uh, gotta plan ahead a little bit more, I guess, mm -hmm. or just take a little more delay, delay, delay. That happens too, so. But all in all, probably didn't, I mean, I think the big effect for me too was all the, typically I sell a lot of my wine at events. And so I lost all those events because I don't have a storefront. I rely on those events mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. And I should have, worked more on my website and got my point of sale going more uh, online, but, uh, you know, because that would have benefited me and it would have been a definite uh, advantage for me, com com you know, comparably. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, but I, I did try to get out there and, you know, sell to existing customers, c consumers that I already have, friends, family, and everybody else that's been seeing me at events and followed my wine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the restaurants dropping off and and the bars and stuff. I had to start trying to get more retail placements, and because those were the only thing selling, you know. So more retail placements, and then yeah, trying to get those existing customers more wine again. So and luckily, you got some loyal, you know, loyal followings that help help keep you afloat a little bit. So, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, that and isolation like everybody else had to deal with. <laughs> I live at home with my dog, so, you know, I had to find ways to just get outside and, you know. See humans. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> see humans and not just talk to my dog or myself all day, yeah. yeah. You talked about moving to a different winery space. It reminded me of a question I wanted to ask you earlier. Obviously, every every place you work, uh, different different materials, different equipment, different, different setup, different kind of timeline. Tell me about, um, adjusting to that as you as you move from place to place and, and of, of how long does it take you to feel at home in a winery uh here uh well you know at laurel ridge i was more i mean here i do a hundred percent of my winemaking at laurel ridge you know i had more help from their staff you know i do all the make all the calls and do the harvest and you know, a lot of the cellar work, and but sometimes they would have a little more involvement there, and mm -hmm. that's tapered down. Mm -hmm. When I went to Day, it was more of the same, but then more me increasingly all the time. And uh, like I said, now here I'm at Keeler, um, you know, 100% of what goes on, you know, I rarely, I, I get some help from people, but it's, you know, it's been really easy here in that way that people are all, you know, showing you how to work a new piece of equipment, you know, that I've, I've not used that press before. What are your press cycles? And just getting their, in, getting their input and what, what they recommend. And a lot of times you have to go with, uh, you know, their testimony. Okay, I, I like this one for this wine and this one for this wine. So I'm like, okay, that sounds good, you know. And that's new, it's new to me. And I, so I gotta try, test this press cycle and then I might, it might not press it enough 
And so I'll go another, you know, um, fraction of a bar and um, and find out. You know, it's just it's just a little slower. You're trying to find your way around. Mm -hmm. You're trying to understand uh, where all the parts are, where all how to work all the equipment. And um, it's been really nice here because, like I said, everyone has been really helpful. And you know, the Keeler staff um, and Nick with Authentique, he's a good friend of mine, and he's he's helped me out a little bit. And so that that's made it pretty easy to fit in here right away. And then the same thing when I was at day camp, uh, Eric was there, and Eric was great to work with, Eric Berg, and had a good time uh, making wine over there with, you know, other winemakers there too. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Laurel Ridge too. It's just it's really about having those good people around you. Mm -hmm. So that that's made it pretty easy. But I think Keeler's been a good fit for me. There's just the whole package deal here. Uh, there's just all all the parts are, are in play. You know, they got space is the most important thing. You know, <laughs> because uh, every winery is always, you know, maximizing. They're always trying to maximize the use of their space. And if they're, you know, if they're not, then they'll find somebody that will. I guess is what way it goes these days. Seems like. So as you. As you look ahead, then for yourself and your brand, what what's next? What 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 what's sort of the the ideal dream uh, outcome, and, and what are the steps you're taking next uh, as Buzz Bloom grows? You know, I uh, when I was in New Zealand, I there's a couple wineries there in Martinborough that were just basically like a a big garage, more or less. You know, they weren't a big operation, but you could tell they had a good time making their wines. They didn't have really fancy equipment. They didn't have all this, which, you know, I'd love to have a big fancy establishment, but, you know, with that comes more everything, more staff, more maintenance. I mean, not to mention, you gotta have the capital to, to build it, first of all, mm -hmm. but then to, to maintain it and run it and, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes into that. You're built. How big a business you want to build, and for me, I think of it as being simple and smaller. And I'm always kind of like doing two or three things. So I'm probably going to do wine with this and maybe a little bit of that. You know, <laughs> I don't know if I can be 100% into anything uh, as far as that goes. I mean, as much as I love it, and it's and like I said, there's so such a multifaceted business. You have to do all. You have to know all these things. You know, mm -hmm. you got to really be a jack of all trades, which is kind of what I've always done. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I could see myself, you know, building a small winery and getting my own thing established. That's where I'd like to go and, you know, finding the right place to do that. And, uh, but still all, this, all the time I'd like to try to think, I'd like to think I could keep it simple. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I probably won't have the traditional tasting room. It'll probably be something a little different. You know, might be just a part of the winery, an outdoor setting. But I'd like to keep making these wines and, and expand on them and doing more than one Pinot per year. You know, maybe start doing different blends. Whereas as to date, I've only fully blended all my clones back. I mean, I do clone specific and I thought about keeping a barrel separate or that clone separate or even a combination of in that one barrel separate. I just still always end up coming back to just blending it all back together, mm -hmm. you know. But I, you know, I gotta keep it basic to this, you know, to this point. And now as I have more time to invest in, hopefully I can 
expand on the varietals, expand on within the varietals, with, with different labels within the varietals. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I'd like to develop that more in the next next couple of years. Um, but yeah, I don't, it might be a bit before I have my own facility, let's say. <laughs> Could be a bit, but it's, you know, if I can maintain here for a while and uh, make some nice wines here with these guys, it's a great, great place to be and good people to work with, really a great family. So I'm curious if you, what your, you, you mentioned your, your first experience with Oregon wine, work, working with Ken Wright. I'm curious as you started to work in the industry and, and, and try some of the wines, what, were your, what was your first impression of the Oregon wine industry? What, what were the first things that you kind of, kind of thought about when it came to Oregon wine? Uh, <laughs> you know how, how uh, small it was when I first got into the industry and now it's about three times as many wineries as it was 20 years ago. I think there was under 300 wineries around the turn uh, of the century. So I think it's, you know, it's, uh, it's grown. It's like the whole, you know, the culture is, is different. It's bigger, but I think back then I really liked the, you know, the agricultural side and the simplicity of, mm -hmm. back to that word, simplicity, but back to, um, you know, back then it was just very, a, a small, tighter knit community. You know, not as many players, not as many big players for sure. Uh, and it was just really still the original, you know, the, really the pioneers, right? The four or six or whatever, whatever point we want to say. But it, there wasn't a lot of people in, in the 70s here in the 80s and, and even in the 90s, there was still just a lot of the, the people that really started this business up here, this industry. So yeah, it's, it's amazing that that's, that sounds like 20 years ago, but for me anyway, but uh, you know, it's changed a lot in the last two decades up here. So it's, it used to be such a small, much, much smaller industry. It's still a pretty small community here today, but yeah, the production is vastly different. The size of the wineries, the number of the wineries. So it's grown pretty exponentially, I'd say. But uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see where it goes. There's still just more and more incentive for you know, wineries to move from elsewhere in the world. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity here. So mm -hmm. I think people, are, people know that, but it's more and more uh, Oregon's becoming on the world map for wine. Which is exciting to see, you know, because it was like, even when I first got into wine, first it got exposed to wine making, you know, a lot of people didn't really realize there was wine in Oregon. I mean, if you were from outside, even if you're in Oregon, a lot of people didn't know that there was wine in Oregon. <laughs> Which is or where, now, Oregon, or where now, Oregon was on a map. And now it's totally different. Now, now it's like, oh yeah, Oregon wine country. Oh, the Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody knows that, even if you're not in the industry or even if you don't drink wine, you know. So with that change, with some of the changes you talked about, and you, you mentioned the, the future, I'm curious, what, what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine? Are there things you're excited for happening in the industry? Are there things you're concerned about? Uh, I mean, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't ask yes or no yeah, questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, 
I mean, climate is a thing. Um, that's a concern. I mean, uh, with climate change and water rights and property value and, you know, disease and that's the downtrodden side um, or the, some of the challenges we're going to have to face or we're going to have to adjust to, we're going to have to adapt to. Um, you know, we could be we could be grafting over all this fruit, right, all these vines right here to a different warmer varietal, you know, before you know it, uh, which is concerning in the long term, for sure. It's also concerning for what the hot climates are going to do that already grow those hot varietals that are going to get hotter and drier. Mm -hmm. But, you know, water challenges, you know, with uh, availability of water, that's impacted and that's with, with the more use of water and the higher population density here, you know, the, the buzz is good and the industry growth is good, but it also brings more challenges and more competition as part of it. But it also brings a lot, you know, there's a lot more wines out here. There are a lot of, the, the, the quality of the wines is, is better and better with more competition, with more knowledge, you know, just like again, learning from your neighbors, whether it's in the vineyard or in the winery. Uh, I think that'll that'll it'll raise the bar in the in the Willamette Valley here. So, um, so that's kind of I think there's you know the good and bad from those same points. You know, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. things that we're gonna have to learn to do differently and adjust to. But um, certainly bringing in more exposure and you know this area getting more exposure and more publicity, more marketing with the growth. Mm -hmm. And the big players too, you know, it hurts you in one way, helps you in another way. So you just kind of roll with it, I think, and do it for as long as you can, I feel like, you know, or to what capacity you can mm -hmm. and see how we do. Yeah. So if someone were to ask you about joining the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom to them or, or advice be? Yeah, you got to love to do it. I mean, that's for sure. It's not you're not going to get rich here. I mean, I've heard of people say like, if you want to be a millionaire in the wine industry, you know, start with 10 million or something like that. <laughs> be a millionaire in no time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> First vintage. <laughs> Probably the best chance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it's, uh, it's, it, you gotta, you gotta, whether you gotta find your place in it, I think is would be my advice. And whether you want to manage vineyards or you want to make wine, uh, you know, do you just want to work at a winery? Because I mean, certainly building a winery and the full undertaking of physically building a winery and building a brand and making good wines, so much that goes into it. It's, it's almost, you know, it's almost overwhelming, mm -hmm. you know, at times. So I think it's kind of what capacity do you want to do it, mm -hmm. but don't, because there is the romance and all the appeal of the wine industry and the wine making and and pouring wine and and there's that whole feel of it but it's really a tough it's a really tough business people don't see what goes into all the work out here in the vineyards they don't see what goes into all of the maintaining a winery properly and um, just all all the work mechanically and and uh, not to mention people you know you gotta you know you gotta take care of the people that make it all happen mm -hmm. so but I think <clears throat> it's a fun industry as does have a lot of opportunity and I think it's something definitely to 
if you're interested, you should just dive in and find out where you want to be, mm -hmm. you know? All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? Um, not really. I think we kind of hit on everything, um, you know, and I could elaborate on stuff, but uh, I guess, you know, back to the brand, you know, my grandfather was, well, out of World War II, uh, he was he was in Normandy. You know, got all kind. He got all kinds of um, medals and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of notoriety for what he did there. And and then he came back from the war and started a homestead in Wyoming. And so he actually homestead in Wyoming, no power, you know, no running water. Uh, so a little farm out there. And then he moved out to Yam Hill and started a farm out here. So that's kind of the beginning of it all. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I really add to the mm -hmm. origin of the brand and the, and the family. So, mm -hmm. yeah. What, you know why you chose the Amhill? Well, Valley, fertile, <laughs> you know, I think he's uh, probably, you know, land was still cheap and it was a far different, far different deal. I mean, there's, there's a lot of space out here then and a lot of, and just such a fertile place to grow. I mean, he came from Cody, Wyoming, which is, you know, very dry, High Plains desert, basically, you know, uh, about as many rocks in a field probably as there is blades of blades of grass or wheat. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's you know that's a very pretty area too out there. But yeah, he's a farmer, so that's it's a brought him here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your yeah. time today, for yeah. your stories, for, for some wine and, and all, the, all the good stuff. And go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.